If you take your copy of God's Word this morning, please, and find your spot at Revelation chapter 3, we will have a very special, I think, Christmas service on the uh, third Sunday of this month, the 21st. We're going to finish up our series uh, this week and next week, and then we'll be done uh, with part one of the book of Revelation, a series we call a divine wake-up call, a divine wake-up call. And uh, we'll finish up this series, as I said, next week, and then we'll wait till 2015. Can you all believe it's almost 2015? And uh, we will uh, jump back into part two of that uh, series. But today we're going to be looking at um, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 uh, in just a moment. As you're finding that, consider this question with me. What is it that determines our impact upon time and eternity. What is it that determines our impact upon time and eternity? I'd imagine the majority of those here today, they really want their life to, to impact and their life to count for time and eternity. You want to make a difference. You want to be a positive uh, influence. You want to leave behind a godly legacy. You want your life to count, not just now, but for all eternity. As I was studying this, uh, this theme and studying Revelation chapter 3 and, and looking at this church, I ran across something uh, that Stephen Lawson said that I thought was uh, quite, uh, quite telling. Notice what he says with me, if you would, please. Uh, Stephen Lawson says, the size of our God will determine the impact of our lives. The size of our God will impact, uh, will determine the impact of our lives. In other words, if we have a little God... We're probably going to have little impact. If God is big to us, we're probably going to have a big impact. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about worldly success. I'm not talking about fame or fortune or even notoriety. What I'm talking about today is true, lasting, eternal impact. And so the question for all of us here today is this. How big is our God? That's a question we need to ask personally. You need to ask yourself, how big is God to me? How big is my God? We need to ask it personally, but we also need to ask it corporately as a church, as a body of believers. Do we really believe that God is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do and what he's done in times past? Do we really believe that he is all powerful and all knowing and all present, holy, just, merciful, compassionate, transcendent? Loving, wonderful, almighty, majestic, the creator, the sustainer of life. We could go on and on and on. Now, we say we believe that and we say we believe that and much more. We sing about his greatness. We talk about his greatness. We teach and preach about his greatness. But do we live it out in our lives? Does it truly impact us? Is he big in our lives? Does it impact our service for him? Do we live it out in our families, in our church? Is God big or is God little to us? I want you to hear the rest of that quote from Stephen Lawson. Uh, It kind of addresses us as a a corporate body. He says the size of our God will determine the impact of our lives, of course. But then notice what he says next. He says churches with a big God will conduct extraordinary ministry. Big Godders. And there's a story behind that I don't have time to tell you. But big Godders shake this world for Christ. And so the question this morning for Red Hill Baptist Church is this. Is God big or is he little to us? Is he great or is he really not so great? As I kept studying this particular passage and reading, Chuck Swindoll was writing and he said something along the same line, the same vein that applies to us as a church. Uh, Chuck had this to say, the size of a congregation, the limitations of its location, I thought about that part. The limitations of its location or the restrictions of its budget should never determine its vision. Instead, notice this. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. And he's right, beloved. It's not about us. It's not about our location and our budget and what we can do and who we are. It's about who he is and what he's called us to do. And so we look at our great God this morning, and as good as Lawson's words are, and as good as Swindoll's words are, they're no match with the Lord Jesus Christ said himself. And so you have Revelation chapter 3 by now, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 7. Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 7. 
Now, I'm going to put it up on the screen. Let me clarify something right now, because there's already been a question about this. Uh, we still want you to bring your Bible to church, okay? Some of you don't bring your Bible, and you ought to bring your Bible. And I want you to follow along. I want you to mark it, make notes in it. You can even be like people I pastored before. I won't name their names who would write down when I preached a certain passage and then I'd preach from that passage. And they'd, Preacher, you preached that one before, didn't you? No, well, might have been a different message. But I am going to project and I give you a lot of cross references. And a lot of times I will say, uh, jot this reference down and I'll read it to you. This way, a lot of those I can let you see them. We can read them together and you can still get the reference down. But uh, everybody see that all right? Is it big enough? Somebody thank me for big, big print. I want us to do this today because we have many different translations among us. And I'm preaching today from the New King James. I want us, if we will, please, to stand and read together this passage. And then we'll pray quickly and then we'll dive into it together. Would you stand with me? And we'll read this together. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Would you read with me this morning? Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Y'all ready? And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And now, Father, bless your word to our hearts. Speak to us today. May we respond in faith in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. This is, of course, the sixth of the seven letters uh, that Jesus sent to these seven churches. And uh, we're looking at these churches. And back in those days, we're talking about seven churches uh, that were in Asia Minor. And you can kind of see the location of those churches. And you'll notice it's kind of a semicircle, if you will. We started out there uh, in uh, Ephesus, then Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis. And today we find ourselves in Philadelphia. And so there's kind of a, a black and white picture where you can see where these churches were. Now, we look today at the church and the message of Philadelphia. And, of course, you know we're not talking about Pennsylvania. I hope you know that. We're not talking about where you can go and get a great, great cheesesteak and then go watch the Phillies get beat by the Atlanta Braves. We're not talking about that place. I had to throw that out because my wife grew up as a Phillies fan. I grew up as an Atlanta Braves fan. And now our whole family are Baltimore Orioles fans. But anyway, uh, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, back in that day, this was the church of Philadelphia and what was then Asia Minor. And I'll show you a map uh, of what it looked like back then. And you'll notice kind of in the center, if you can see that in the very center, uh, almost the center of the uh, slide there, you'll find the church at Philadelphia. And that's what it looked like, looked like back in that day. Now, here's what it looks like today, according to Google. And you know, if it's from Google, it's got to be perfectly right. Correct. And so there it is today. You see Turkey and you see the little mark. There's where you find the uh, spot of where the church in Philadelphia would have been located. If you were to travel there, have you ever been over in that area? I'm curious. 
All right. So you don't know if what I'm showing you is true or not on these next slides. But anyway, uh, these were given to me in a master's class uh, in uh, when I was doing my master's degree. Here are some photographs from that area. Uh, There's the Acropolis in that area. And uh, you can kind of get a feel of what that's like so we can travel there not only in scripture, but also uh, seeing photographs as we continue going there. There's a view to the south. From the Acropolis, I think it's a pretty place, as you see the mountains there in the background. And then as we continue journeying there, uh, there's a column from what was the Philadelphia Church of St. John. Uh, very impressive, to say the least. And then I like this view. This is the city view from the Acropolis, if you were to travel there. I think these were taken uh, several years ago. But that will give you kind of an idea of what that place looks like today. Uh, If you were to go back and visit there. Now, as we've studied these churches together, I told you that the application has been threefold. First of all, there's truth and there's a message for that literal church that was there. These were literal churches in that place in that time as John received this revelation and sent these uh, messages from Jesus Christ to them. So there's truth for them. And then secondly, there's truth for the churches that exist today, including our church, Red Hill Baptist Church. You know, I said early on in this series, we're going to take these churches that we're studying and we're going to hold Red Hill Baptist Church up beside them. And we're going to see what God has for us and what God is saying to us. And then thirdly, of course, there's truth for us as individual Christians and our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you probably notice as we read it together that Jesus had no words of, of condemnation for them. Did you notice that? You know, other churches, he had words of condemnation, but he had none for them. In fact, he had words of commendation, things he commended. Uh, The scholars tell me this was probably the youngest of the seven churches, and it was probably the smallest of the seven churches. And yet it's interesting, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has no words of condemnation. Instead, he had words of commendation and words of counsel for them. Now, though he did not give any strong words of condemnation, we know that it was not a perfect church. How do we know that? Well, because there are no perfect churches. By the way, if you ever find a perfect church, don't you dare join it. You'll mess it up. (laughs) And they better not call me as their pastor because I'll mess it up. Churches are not perfect. Why? Because they're made up of people. And people are not perfect. And even redeemed people, children of the king, those on their way to heaven, those that are uh, sons and daughters of God, they get messy at times. And if you're new new here, I go ahead and burst your bubble. You think, wow, look at this church. We're messy at times. And it's just the reality of it. But the Lord still loves us and we love one another and we work through those messes uh, together. But we find commendation and counsel. And Jesus looks at this church at Philadelphia This smaller church. And he says to them several things. We'll summarize it this way. First of all, he says to them, uh, I know you. I know you. If you look there at verses seven and eight, and this thing's fighting with me today. It worked perfectly last night, uh, but it's fighting with me today. Verses seven and eight. Look back at verse seven and look at how the Lord Jesus Christ describes himself. He says in Revelation chapter three, verse seven. And to the angel that is literally the messenger, we believe the pastor in Philadelphia, write These things says he who is, first of all, holy. Jesus describes himself as holy. Uh, That is, he is without uh, sin. He is set apart. He is separate. He is holy. And then it goes on to say in the next part of the verse, he who is true. So he's truthful. There's no deceit. Uh, He's totally true. These things says he who is holy, he who is true. In other words, he is God. He is the holy one. He is the true one. And then he goes on to talk about a special key, the key of David. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And then he talks about uh, opening and shutting doors. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But look at verse number eight. He says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. So as the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to this church, I know you. He talks about, first of all, their works. He says, I know your works. I know all about your works. And by the way, he said that to every one of the churches. And he knows their works because he's in the midst of the churches. And he is God and he knew all about them. He sees all. He knows all. He makes a perfect judgment concerning all. He knows everything about us today. There's nothing hidden from his sight. And he says, I know your works. But then it says in verse number eight, what it talks about that they have a little strength. So Jesus Christ knew all about their weakness. The fact that they were a weak church. Uh, That word also has the idea, the sense of not possessing influence. 
And so the church at Philadelphia, it was not a powerful, influential church. In fact, the Bible says here, it's weak. You have little strength. Now, how would you feel if the Lord Jesus Christ were to send a letter to us and says, listen, I know you have little strength. I know that you're weak. How would we respond to that? Well, listen carefully. Listen carefully. Beloved, it's not a bad thing to be weak. In fact, when it comes to the Christian life, it's a great thing. It's a needful thing. It's a blessing. Perhaps you remember what the Bible says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. He said, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says there in that passage, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, Paul says, listen, I have a choice. I want to be weak. So the power of Christ could be evident in my life. Now, listen, we can be too big for God to use, too proud, too arrogant, too haughty, but we can never be too small or too humble. In fact, our God delights to take things that are small and insignificant and even despise things and people like that. And he delights to use those things and those people for his glory. Jesus looks at this church and says, listen, I know all about your works. I know all about your weakness. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that he knew about their obedience. He says in the next part of verse eight that you have kept my word. You've been obedient. And if we're going to be useful, if we're going to make a big impact upon time and eternity, we've got to be obedient. We've got to obey the word of God. And as we've been studying these churches, church after church after church, I hope that you remember and have recognized the importance of believing right of doctrine and obeying what the word of God teaches. And Jesus looks at this small, this young church, and he says, listen, I know that you've been obedient. I know that you've kept my word. I know that you have been obedient to the word of God. And then he goes on to tell them something else. And I'm sure it's a blessing to them. Jesus said, listen, I know all about I know all about your faithfulness. I know all about your faithfulness. He says in the end of verse eight, you have not denied my name. You have not denied my name. In other words, they were not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved Jesus. They stood for Jesus. They had not denied him. They hadn't turned their back upon Jesus. They were not afraid to speak in his name. And by the way, can I just tell you, beloved, that we're living in a society right now. We're living in a day right now. We're living in a culture right now. We're living in a nation right now where we're being tested in these very matters. It is not popular. Uh, it is not politically correct to preach the pure, unadulterated word of God. That's not popular and that's not politically correct. That's frowned upon and, and that's even pushed against. It's not popular nor politically correct to proclaim the only way to heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ to call sin what it is. Sin to say that there are some things that God's word says are off limits and they're wrong and they're sin and they're always wrong. But we must always preach the truth of the word of God. And I believe we will do that if our God is big. If our God is who he says he is and we believe he is who he says he is. Now, we find here he talks about their works and their weakness and their obedience and their faithfulness. But we skipped a part there, didn't we? In verse number seven. Talking about this key that Jesus has and then talking about opening and shutting doors. And Jesus made the statement there in verse number seven that he has the key of David, the key of David. That's an interesting phrase, interesting thought. We read about the key of David back in Isaiah chapter 22. I'll share the verse with you in a moment. But let me set the stage. King Hezekiah is ruling. He's upon the throne. And King Hezekiah has a man by the name of Eliakim. And Eliakim was the royal treasurer. And as the royal treasurer, he had the key that allowed access to the royal treasury. And he's the one that could open and shut that door. And it talks about the key of David. In fact, if you'll take a look at it with me uh, there in Isaiah 22, 22, here's what it says. The key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. Uh, 
I'm understanding keys were a lot bigger back then <laughs> uh, than what we did. Lay it up on your shoulder. Imagine putting your key on your shoulder. But the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. That sounds a lot like Revelation 3, 7, doesn't it? Where Jesus says, listen, I have the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now think about keys for a moment. Think about keys. Several things are quite evident when it comes to talking about keys. First of all, if you think about a key, it represents authority. It represents authority. If you've got a key to something, then you have the authority to exit and to enter. You have the authority to enter that place and to lock the place and so forth. You've been trusted if you've been given a key. Before becoming your pastor, when I moved back to the Charlotte area... And I worked at the Bible Broadcasting Network. When I went there to the headquarters, they gave me a key. Now, it wasn't a key like we think about a key around here. It was a plastic dooflinky. Do you all know what a plastic dooflinky is? It was a plastic dooflinky they put on my ring. And I could take that plastic dooflinky and I put it up against a little box and it would unlock the door. And I'd been trusted with authority and I could doop and go right in. And I could leave and I could come and go as I wanted because I'd been given a key to that place. When I became your pastor and I left that place, I had to give the key back. And I don't have a key anymore. And now if I go, they have to let me in. And they probably give me a guest pass. I went back because I'm no longer employed by them. See, a key represents authority. And it says here that Jesus has the key of David. And I think that makes sense, don't you? Because Jesus is the one who's going to rule upon the throne of David for all eternity. And he says, I have the key. So it represents authority, but it also represents control. If you have a key, you can lock a door and you can unlock a door. And so you have a key. And so we might say, I want to give you a key to the, the storage room back here. I want to give you a key to the shed down there. I want to give you a key to the office. And so now you have control. You can go in there and lock that door or unlock that door. And we find this is where the, the illustration kind of breaks down because Jesus goes a step further. He says, listen, I can open and no one can shut and I can shut and no one can open. You and I can lock a door today and somebody else can go break it down. They could tear up the lock. They could tear it down. But Jesus Christ has complete and total control, complete and total authority. And when he opens, he can keep it open permanently. And when he shuts, he can shut it permanently. A key represents authority. It represents control. And it also represents power. Power. Now, we're limited in this. Someone can break that door down, as I said, for a moment. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ, he can keep things open and shut as he will. Do you see, beloved, just how big, how great our God is? He has total authority, total control and total power. Jesus can shut and no one can open and go against his will. Now, think about for a moment the keys that are on your key ring. You might have a house key. You might have a, a shop key. You might have a car key or two. You ever thought about what's on Jesus's key ring? That's an interesting thought. This is a blessing to me as I study this out. Let me share with you just a couple of verses here. What's on Jesus's key ring? Notice it says in Revelation chapter one, verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. This is Jesus. Notice what he says next. And I have the keys of what? I have the keys of Hades and of death. And so on Jesus' key ring, he has the key of Hades, the key of hell, and the key of death. He's victorious. He's conquered death, hell, and the grave. He has the key to them. And then, of course, in our passage this morning, Revelation 3, 7, says, I have the key of David. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so we have this key of David. Then he talks about doors. I open a door, no one can shut. Shut a door, no one can open. But then verse 8, he says to Philadelphia, verse 8, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Now, here's the question. What kind of door is this? What is it open to? Well, as I studied this out, there are several possibilities and people have different ideas, but all of these are true. I think the third one's the best option for this particular passage. But some say, well, he's talking about the door of salvation, the door of salvation. We know that Jesus Christ is the door. He says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. That was shared in our Sunday school class this morning. Back here, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. 
Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So some say, well, he's talking about salvation there. There's that door open. Nobody can shut it. They're eternally secure. They're forever saved. Now, that's true. I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Some say, well, this could be all about spiritual blessings. That he's opened a door. Just as Eliakim, the royal treasurer, could open up the royal treasury. So Jesus Christ is our access to our spiritual blessings and our spiritual riches in Christ. He says, I've opened it up. Nobody can shut it. And while that's true, I don't think that's what's talked about here. I think the third option is the best option. I'll tell you why in a moment. I think what this is, is the opportunity. This open door is the opportunity to spread the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The Lord has opened the door to the church of Philadelphia for them to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, preacher, why do you think that's the best option? Well, when I go back and I compare scripture with scripture and I look at what's being said here, I think it is the best option. Look at it with me. I'll share several verses. First Corinthians 16, eight through nine. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great pulse is a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. There's an open door for service and ministry and spreading the gospel. Second Corinthians 2.12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord. A door of spreading the gospel. Colossians 4, 2 through 3. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word. To speak the mystery of Christ for which I also am in chains. We need the Lord open doors to spread the gospel. Just as we need him to open the hearts of the men and women and boys and girls and teenagers that receive the gospel. We need the Lord to open their hearts and we need the Lord to open the door for us to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have here in this passage, Jesus saying to this church in Philadelphia, listen, I know you. I know you. But then he goes a step further and says uh, to them, as we look at the next verse, I love you. Look at verse nine. Verse nine is interesting. It, it appears these unbeliever, these believers didn't have an easy time with things. Uh, they met some resistance. Verse nine. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you. In other words, they were going they were going to see the enemies of the gospel. These unbelieving Jews that were apparently giving them resistance. They were going to see them humbled by the gospel. Perhaps some of them were going to get saved. Perhaps some of them were going to be like old Saul, the persecutor of the church. And God gloriously saves him and he becomes the apostle Paul. But they were going to see the humbling of these enemies of the gospel. But what caught my eye in verse 9 were the last several words. Where he says that I want the enemies, I want your enemies, the enemies of the gospel, I want you to, I want them to know that I love you. Look at it. I want them to know that I have loved you. Now, Jesus knew all about the people in Philadelphia. He knew about their works, their weakness, their obedience, their faithfulness, the good, the bad, the ugly. He saw them warts and all. There was no paying extra to old meals and removing the spots and touching up the wrinkles. He saw it all. I know you. And I still love you. I love you. Beloved, can I just say to you today, Jesus loves you. Wrap your arms around it. If you don't get anything else, if you forget everything else, I say, don't forget that. That's true whether you know him or not. Whether you belong to him or not. You're a child of God or not. He loved you so much he came. God sent him. He lived a sinless perfect life. He took your place upon the cross. He died. He shed his precious blood for you. He arose victorious for you. If you'll turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ, he will save you. He loves you. I invite you to him today. Christian, you already know this. This is nothing new to you, but perhaps you've forgotten just how much he loves you. Would you remember afresh and anew? Can you just say it to yourself today? Jesus loves me. Let's say it together. Jesus loves me. Say it again. Jesus loves me. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Amen. Jesus loves me. We've got to hurry. 
We know that he says to them, I know you, I love you. And then we find next, he says to them, I will keep you. Verse number 10 says, because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon you, upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now think about this for a moment. I want you to notice that verse 10 there. I've underlined a word. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. We notice it's not a local trial. It says it's going to come upon the whole world. So this is not just a trial concerning the believers in Philadelphia, but upon the world. And what we have here, and I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, and I wish we did. And if you'll come back in 2015, we start studying part two of Revelation. We'll unpack it more. But what we have here, I believe, beloved, is the rapture of the church. Where he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world. The rapture of the church. The next great event on God's prophetic calendar, if you will, is the rapture of the church. That is believers being called up to be with Jesus forever. And then after that, there'll be the great tribulation here upon the earth. Seven years of tribulation. And then we'll return with the Lord Jesus Christ in his second coming. Now, we don't have time to unpack all this, but let me very quickly show you. There are different thoughts concerning when the rapture takes place. And there's three words up there you don't use very often, but I wanted you to see them. And I want you to think about them very quickly. There are those who believe in post-tribulationism. How many of you used that word this past week? Post-tribulationism. That's a $20 word. Simply means they believe the church will go through the tribulation period, then be raptured. I don't believe that's scriptural. Uh, The second part of this is the idea of mid-tribulationism. Mid-tribulationism. They believe the church will go through part of the tribulation and then be raptured midway through. I don't think that's scriptural and right. But then there's something called pre-tribulationism. That's what we hold to here. We believe that's what this passage is saying. So I'll keep you from that time. And so what he's saying there is this. We believe... That before the great tribulation, before the tribulation begins on the earth, Jesus Christ is coming to take us home. Nothing has to happen for that to take place. The the signs of the times you're reading are about his second coming. But seven years prior, we find the rapture of the church. And so we believe that the rapture of the church is the next great event upon God's prophetic calendar. If you'll notice the Bible here, say, so, well, how do you believe? Why do you believe it's a pre-trib? Well, let me just show you here. Three passages deal with the rapture. And again, don't feel like you have to get all this in because we're going to revisit it in 2015, okay? But John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4, they all talk about the rapture, and they don't talk about judgment. They talk about going home to heaven. Talk about being taken up, being delivered. And so what we have here, beloved, I believe, is the rapture of the church and the rapture of the church and the second coming are two different things. If you'll notice there and don't again feel like you get all this down. Those of you who like to fill in blanks and notes, you're feeling a lot of pressure right now. Don't feel that pressure. I'm with you. I'm the one at the conference writing everything down. Get it down. But just so you can see, there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. There's a tribulation in between. And we're looking for the rapture of the church. And we believe that's what's going on here. And what's what's being talked about here when he says to them, listen, I am going to deliver you to keep you from the hour of trial. It's going to come over the whole earth. In verse 11, he says, behold, I am coming quickly. And we're looking for his coming again. So we see here the rapture of the church. And Jesus says to these Philadelphian believers, I will keep you from that time. I will keep you. But then he says, finally, this morning, as we look at their time together in verses 11 through 13, Jesus Christ says to them, I will bless you. I will bless you. They'd already been blessed, but they're going to continue being blessed. Verse 11 talks about his coming. We believe that's the rapture. And then he also talks about rewards. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. We're going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. And he wants them not to lose these rewards because we can. And then he addresses the overcomers in the last part of this passage. And the overcomers, you remember, are not super Christians. They're not people who open up their shirt and there's a giant C because they've arrived with a cape behind them. An overcomer is a person who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is he? Who is she who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So you're an overcomer today. And he says to these believers in Philadelphia, here's what I'm going to give you. And by the way, here's what he's going to give you as well as an overcomer. He mentioned several things. First of all, he says, listen, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar, you remember, holding up the building. It speaks of stability and security. It says you'll go out no more. You'll have stability and security as a pillar. He says that I'll write on him the name of my God. When you write your name on something, it shows ownership. And he says, listen, I'm going to write in the name of my God. And God is our owner and our Lord, and our master. And I'll write on you the name of my God. Then he says, I'm going to write on him the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. We'll talk more about that in 2015, God willing. But that reminds us of our citizenship. By the way, our home is not here. Your home is not in Wadesboro. It's not in Ansonville. It's not in Norwood. It's not wherever you're from. That's not your true home. Yes, I understand here upon the earth that's your home. But our true home as believers is where? It's in heaven with the Lord. He says, I'll write on you the name of the, the city, the new Jerusalem. And finally, I'll write on him, Jesus says, my new name. What's he mean by that? Well, I think that means it speaks of his full revelation. We'll get to see Jesus in all his glory. We'll get to see Jesus for who He is and as He is. We'll see Jesus face to face. And these are the promises He gave that young, small church. Meeting resistance, faithfully serving the Lord. He says, listen, I have all these blessings for you. I'm going to bless you. Why? Because of my grace and mercy and love. I know you. I love you. I will keep you. And I will bless you. Now, here's the question as we close our time up this morning. Preacher Rodney, what do we do with all this? What does this mean to us as believers living here at the end of 2014? What does this mean to uh, to, uh, Red Hill Baptist Church? Well, look at Revelation 3.13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I ask you, have you heard this this morning? Have you received it this morning? You say, well, yes. What do we do with it? Well, I think it's real, real simple. As I thought about that, how do I close this message? Well, I thought, here's what we need to do. We need to walk through the open door. Walk through the open door. And some here this morning, you need to walk through the door of salvation. You need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Him. And that's the door you need to go through. The door of salvation. And then there are those here today who say, listen, I'm saved. I know that. But maybe you need to walk through the door this morning of spiritual blessings. To understand who you are in Jesus Christ. To understand your identity in Christ. To understand what you have in Jesus Christ. You need to walk through those doors and receive the blessings that God has given to you in Christ. And then there are those of us and all of us who are believers. We need to walk through that opportunity, that door of spreading the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, of sharing our faith with other people. We've been given the commission, the great commission to go into all the world and share the gospel with those who have never heard and those who need the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do we what do we do with all this? Well, we walk through the door. Why? Because the size of our God will determine the impact of our lives. And so is our God truly this great? Is our God truly this wonderful? Is he truly the one who is holy and true, has the key of David, has all authority, all power, all control? Is he the truly the one who knows us intimately and everything about us? And yet he still loves us with an unconditional love. You see, the one that says, listen, I will keep you. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. And he's the one that says, I'm going to bless you. I bless you in days gone by. I'm blessing you now. And I'm going to bless you again and again and again. Is that your God today? The closing question this morning is this. How big is your God? Is he great or not so great? Is he big Or is he little? Is he God alone in your life? Be honest this morning. How big is your God? Let's pray. Father, it is with a grateful heart that we bow in your holy presence. And I pray for those here today who need to walk through the door. The only way to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would bring them and allow me to put them as someone who will share the gospel with them and walk them and walk with them to the cross. I pray for Christians today, Lord, who 
really are struggling and don't realize all they have in Christ Jesus. They'll walk through the door of spiritual blessing. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to walk through the door of spreading the gospel to those who've never heard. I pray, Lord, that as we live our days out here, both personally and corporately as a church, that our God would be big. We would see you more and more week by week, day by day, in your splendor and your glory. We would understand exactly just how wonderful and awesome you really are. Bless this invitation, I pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing in closing 411. If you need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ today, I'll be standing right down there. Just come let me know that. I'll place you with someone who will take a Bible and share Christ with you. If you want to come and pray this morning, maybe God has burdened your heart about seeking your spiritual riches in Him. Maybe you want to come today and pray. Maybe God has burdened your heart about sharing the gospel. You want to come and pray for somebody, maybe someone in your family, someone you work with, someone at school. Pray for an open door that you can go through and share the gospel. Pray for an open heart. Consider that question as we sing 411. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. How big is your God? Would you respond to him today? Let's stand and sing 411.